Good afternoon. It's Friday the 18th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen. Do apologise, Patrick. The name is wrong. No problem. Uh, um, OK, so uh, we'll, look, we'll, get, we'll get straight on with it because, uh, of course, uh, here we are. Stay home. Uh, we're looking at lockdowns or rumours of lockdowns, at least. And that is the question. What is uh, what is going on? Well, uh, they're considering the government tightening restrictions. Uh, they're calling it a circuit breaker lockdown. So they're talking about uh, over perhaps the half term period, uh, shutting everything down for a couple of weeks, except for schools, but except they're going to minimize the impact of schools by doing this over half term uh, and they're not going to shut down businesses. So it's not quite the same lockdown as we saw before, but nonetheless, uh, this is because the number of cases is going through the roof, they claim. The headlines today uh, on a lot of the major papers, Mike, is 10 million Britons are already in lockdown. So they're, they're kind of already easing the country towards this inevitable uh, call for a second lockdown. Is that what you're saying? Well, of course, those 10 million people are locked into... Uh, uh, local lockdowns. Local lockdowns. Uh, of yeah. course, Boris has said a, a, a second national lockdown would be disastrous. Um, so he's saying we're not going to do it, uh, and then we're going to do it. So mm. uh, anyway, uh, this uh, this potential national lockdown would see uh, you know, maybe uh, restaurants and and pubs and so on having to close at 10 p.m. Not allowed to open again till uh, the following morning, uh, and so on. But let's just uh, let's just have a look at what Matt Hancock was saying here. Uh, he said, uh, uh, the virus is clearly accelerating across the country. It's accelerating, <laughs> Patrick. Now, don't laugh too much. This is, this is, this is serious. Uh, here we go. Uh, we've got to take the necessary action to keep people safe. We will do what it takes to keep people safe. Now, this is very important. We'll be coming on to this keeping people safe business uh, a little bit later. Uh, and he said, uh, the number of cases is doubling every eight days. This is the claim. Um, so let's just have a look at this claim because here's the uh, latest graph from the government's uh, COVID-19 dashboard. Uh, and uh, well, it certainly looks looks like a bad picture there, Patrick, because if we look on the right-hand side, uh, we'll put a ring around that to show you. You can see that the number of cases is nearly as bad. Now that we're sort of testing to some degree anyway, the number of cases is just as bad as it was uh, in the at the peak of this when there were no no testing going on at all. Yeah, it's a big scary camel hump there, isn't it? So right. We've got to flatten the flatten the camel. We've got to flatten the camel is the is the latest <laughs> thing. So, but the thing is, if you look at the the seven day moving average, which is the solid blue line there, you can see that it, we seem to have already hit the peak. Mm. Um, so, th again, the statistics don't seem to back up the activity yeah. from the government, or the government seems to be missing the boat. Yeah, not only that, Mike, they're misappropriating, as we said previously, the language. They're saying cases there. Those aren't cases. Those are positive PCR tests, mostly. And uh, a positive PCR test does not equate uh, a case of COVID-19. This has already been proven. Uh, New York Times uh, already published a, a very good piece explaining why this is uh, being misread uh, in the United States. We'll get more on that later. Well, well, let's look at it right now because uh, here is uh, there's your cases, as we mentioned. Uh, let's look at the patients in hospital because, of course, this is uh, this gives a better idea, perhaps, of uh, how many of those uh, positive results actually turn into genuine cases. Uh, and uh, well, as you can see there, this is uh, the UK total on screen. Uh, well, let's draw a line. Uh, 
that hits the peak of, from yesterday. Uh, this is yesterday's statistic. And really, it doesn't look like there's any growth in the number of cases, uh, infection, um, actual problems, COVID-19, real cases. Complications, as opposed, to, yeah. as opposed to positive results. Getting uh, sick, basically, since, right? Since yeah. mid-July there. So, so since mid-July, it hasn't really changed very much. So how come that camel only has one hump, Mike? This is, this is the question. But Matt Hancock's camel has two humps. Uh, this is true. So this is interesting. Th this is true, and it is interesting. But of course, this is what's being uh, used to drive us towards the new normal. So let's just look at this uh, path uh, to the vaccine. Uh, that we're on at the moment. At the moment, we have the situation where, uh, of course, we're being encouraged to take tests, but don't take a test if you don't have symptoms, but do take a test if you're told to take a test by your employer or by the NHS or by school, for example. Um, and we are in the situation where uh, apparently the demand for tests is so great uh, that the testing system can't cope. So we've got this false rationing scenario going on at the moment. So they've generated this demand amongst people. We've got to have tests. And of course, that's mainly being driven not by uh, requirements through legislation, but by uh, employers and, and others actually generating that, demanding that you have a test done before you can come into the hospital or you can come into the school or you can come into your place of work. And the media is driving the narrative of the shortage of of tests and anecdotal stories of people, um, you know, not being able to get tests. There are tests available for certain sectors, right? But not for others. So this is where that artificial scarcity uh, comes in, doesn't well, it? Well, well, there's a bit more than that because, I mean, for example, I do know people personally that, that have been uh, told to take a test. They can't get a test in Plymouth. They're being sent to uh, Taunton, which is two, you know, two hour, hours half, away. two hour drive away. Yeah. So ridiculous. So it, it is ridiculous, but this is false. It's fake. It's it's mm. it's uh, being it's being created in order to generate this demand. I believe and a bit people. of chaos as well. Absolutely. Yep. So, but the other advantage of this creating this false rationing uh, scenario is that it helps fudge the figures because, of course, if there's pent up demand for tests, then suddenly you get this big batch of tests all happening at the same time. So, so let's say they, they restrict access to tests. The number of people getting tested is, is reduced slightly. Uh, therefore, the number of new cases are re reduced slightly. That gives the mainstream press the opportunity to say, well, we've had this number of cases today. And then tomorrow you re relax the restriction on the number of tests that there are. Suddenly, all the people that have been waiting in a queue to get tested, go to the test center, get their test. The results come out. There will inevitably be some positive tests in among that lot. And then the next thing you'll see a headline saying uh, 10,000 new people New, new cases have, have arisen uh, when in fact it's all fake, it's all false. It's because of the way that the testing regime is being run and the brakes being put on and then the brakes being released. And this we saw, Patrick, if you remember, uh, during the height of the pandemic, uh, as we highlighted on this program before, with regards to the number of deaths where the figures weren't being counted over the weekends and then they were being pushed into the Mondays. And then, of course, the Daily Mail comes out on the Monday morning and says highest death rate four days. And, and, and it's, it was all a, a false narrative based on the way that the numbers were being counted and the availability of the statistics. That, well, that's the reports we're getting from the United States right now. Some states have stopped reporting daily 
reports for their dashboard, they're doing it three times a week. So this is creating these, in the short term, it creates the impression that there's a surge, there's a surge of new cases. But really what they're doing is just stacking up three, four days reporting on one, and then the media cherry picks that, and all of a sudden you have a crisis and a quote, a lockdown. This, in the short term, they'll use this to push towards a lockdown, but of course in a couple of months, people might figure out, but by that time it's too late when you're already in lockdown. So what you're saying, Mike, essentially, is that this fake scarcity of tests, this fake demand is creating a fake surge. Absolutely. Afterwards, in a, in a fake crisis, effectively, right? Uh, absolutely, and yeah. of course the other thing that happens is there's the threat of lockdown, uh, and the threat of lockdown is driving the demand for testing as well. So inevitably that brings us uh, to the rollout of daily testing. We will get the rollout of daily testing. We're coming on to that in a second, an example of it. Uh, and then that takes us to immunity passports. These have been discussed already on this program. They're being discussed in the, uh, in the press. Uh, and with that comes the acceptance of the new normal. And this is a really a key point here, Patrick, of course, because this is not about returning to normality. Because if we are accepting daily tests or even weekly tests or monthly tests, alongside an immunity passport, which has a nice big red, amber and green status for you. So if you've, if you've got green status, you've tested negative, you're allowed to do things. If you've got red status, you've tested positive, you're not allowed to do things. This is not a return to normal. This is the new normal. This is about the, tracking. It's the new abnormal. Track and tra absolutely, track yeah. and trace and so on. So the app is the, immu the immunity passport is the app. That's basically. right, that's right. That, that'll be the first iteration of an immunity passport. Most likely it's gonna be through a mobile app, right? Absolutely, that's exactly how it's gonna be, yes, no. absolutely. Lots of, lots of companies uh, queuing up to provide that service. Uh, and then of course, uh, Inevitably, uh, you know, testing will be viewed at this at this point as being inconvenient, uh, and that takes us uh, to the uh, to the vaccine, which is much more convenient. So people will be begging after all the chaos of all the testing, uh, stop, start, go, go back again, uh, not being able to get to work and access to sporting events, concerts, and they'll they'll dangle the carrot and then stick simultaneously. People will be clamoring for a vaccine. Absolutely. Cr create the fake demand, create the fake crisis, and then you create, a, in that way, you create a, a demand for a solution. And, and the vaccine will be presented as the solution. Problem, reaction, solution. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, speaking of testing, uh, here we go. DNA Nudge, we've been talking about this organization for quite some time. Uh, this is what the test is gonna look like. In fact, uh, the, the little blue uh, disc there is where you put your swab. Um, and uh, well, they're calling this a laboratory in a box. Uh, so this is gonna give you a result in 45 minutes. Uh, and this is the one that's being pushed very hard by the BBC this morning. And the reason for that uh, is because uh, the Lancet, the most reliable uh, of, uh, oh, yes. You're sarcastic. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the most reliable of, of uh, medical journals uh, has uh, produced this report assessing a novel lab-free point-of-care test for SARS-CoV-2 uh, COVID nudge, a diagnostic accuracy study. So it has been given a clean bill of health, Patrick. Why, why is it called nudge? Why did, of all the words that they could choose? Uh, I think, we, well, we have, we have explained that, 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 that <laughs> it is absolutely because this is all about behavioral change. Everything yeah. that's going on here is about behavioral change. Nudge. Nudge. The nudging, straight out of the nudging unit. Uh, absolutely. So let's head over to Ireland. Is, are things any different there? No, here's the Irish examiner. Uh, COVID-19, Dublin restrictions decision will save lives, says Catherine Martin. And this is the focus. 
patient safety, saving lives, uh, whatever restrictions there are anywhere, they will save lives. But Patrick, I'm not aware that they saved any lives uh, during uh, the previous lockdown. In fact, as we've said on many occasions, and if anybody wants to see the, the evidence that we've presented for this, uh, you need to have a look at previous UK column news programmes because uh, the lockdown deaths, as we're describing, the excess mortality that we saw during the so-called peak of this pandemic, absolutely a result of the lockdown and nothing else. So the red shaded area, those are above and beyond uh, the what, average. what you believe yes. yeah, and, and can't necessarily only be attributed to, quote, COVID deaths, right? These are deaths as a result directly of lockdown policies. And particularly the, the, the reorientation of effort by the National Health Service away from every other area of healthcare towards COVID-19. So people with cancer, people with heart conditions, people with strokes weren't getting the, the support that they needed. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of it was generated by the behavioral scientists. So if you remember Spy B in their original document saying we've got to uh, generate this fear in the population. So a lot of the, a lot of the deaths that took place uh, during the peak of this, once again, as a result of the fear that people had to even go to the hospital and get medical attention in the first place. So people were dying in their homes. Uh, also on top of that, as we're about to come on to, uh, people dying in care homes. Dr. Carol Sikora uh, tweeted this out this morning, Mike, we're not gonna show it because uh, but you, you just reminded me of this. He was talking about people who had uh, appointments for screening for lung cancer, something like 14,000 uh, appointments or something like this, known uh, points missing or, or late. So early or, or early um, uh, identification of lung cancer is extremely important in presenting, uh, preventing the later stage cancers. And that's another uh, 14,000 or so people you can put into that category yes. as well. I mean, it's just all those reports are coming due, Mike. That penny's dropping now. Yes. That sort of delayed uh, health bomb from from cancer and all the uh, screening appointments missed. Um, so where's this ultimately going? Well, we have been reporting from around the world at, where, at other people's uh, attempts to, to deal with lockdown, create lockdowns and, and so on and how far they've gone with it. And Victoria in Australia has been one of the uh, main culprits featured for hydroconium they've been. Um, well, a number of people have been sending emails to me over the last few days about some new legislation there. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight this article. I'm going to read a little bit from this because it is worth just spending a few minutes on here, Patrick. Uh, this is from The Spectator in Australia, Daniel Andrews' plan for indefinite detention and more. Uh, and so uh, what they say here is the Victorian Labour government has introduced a bill to Parliament coupled with other measures as one of the most egregious attacks on civil liberties seen since war uh, in war or peacetime. The bill would allow people to be detained indefinitely and give sweeping powers to untrained people to become authorised officers with sweeping powers to arrest and detain fellow Victorians. So called the COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures Amendment Bill. Now, this is important because in the emails that I saw circulating on this, uh, it was being called the COVID-19 Omnibus, Omnibus Emergency Measures Bill, but that bill was passed in April uh, and so some people will have, there'll be some confusion over that. That bill was actually passed in April. This is an amendment bill which amends the previous April bill and makes it even more draconian. Uh, it overrides all the other laws, says this article, and legislation with the exception of the Charter of Human Rights. Uh, the bill confers an, a, and, an extraordinary power to the Secretary of the Department of Health to appoint public servants as authorised officers with the same powers as police. Critically, there's no mention in the bill what sort of training these people will get. 
the bill provides an emergency power to detain any person or group of persons in an emergency area for a period reasonably necessary to eliminate or reduce a serious risk to public health. But here's the kicker. Once detained, you have no rights under law and can be detained for an indefinite period. Section 200 bracket 6 of the Public Health and Wellbeing Act 2008 requires an authorised officer to review at least once every 24 hours during the period that a person is sub subject to detention, whether the continued detention is reasonably necessary. Uh, but however, <laughs> you've got to keep, keep this in context because that means you'll be locked up and detained at the whim of a designated officer for as long as they feel like. Uh, there's no provision whatsoever for a review of the detention, a third party review that is. Uh, ultimately, a person may have to apply to the Supreme Court to grant an order of habeas corpus for release. Uh, these powers, uh, says the article, are arbitrary and extreme. And Victoria has been uh, pretty extreme. Uh, but I haven't, there are other countries being extreme in other ways. And if we start to see these uh, extremes uh, coalescing in, in various places, we end up in a very bad place. Yeah, and so Australia and New Zealand are uh, regarded by a lot of people as kind of beta testing grounds uh, for sort of extreme globalist policies for uh, social engineering and things like this. And, and there's a lot of different reasons why, you know, the, there's no pushback in Australia. One of the reasons is they're paying very well for people to stay at home. Mm. Uh, job keepers and also um, job seekers. Uh, upwards for job keepers, something like 3000 Australian dollars a month. Not bad. So it's basically a basic salary mm. for staying home. That sort of softened the blow for the government. Now, just to tell you quickly how bad it's gotten in Australia. A 33-year-old woman in Perth last week became the first person uh, to get an ankle bracelet, uh, ankle tag, uh, because she came back from holiday in New South Wales, back to Perth. Uh, some, the new COVID marshals, I think the, the new safety team they have in uh, Western Australia, they spotted two men at her house. So she was supposed to be in two-week quarantine after coming from another state. So because she, she broke quarantine, she was brought taken out of her house put in a designated hotel for observation and then tagged on the ankle with like this type of thing you'd give a prisoner uh, when you do put them on bail or release. Mm. So she was the first person uh, to receive this in the country. So they're, they're clearly planning to possibly roll this out. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of bad publicity for this, a lot of pushback, even as bad as it is in Australia, that that, that might even be a step too far. Mm -hmm. But who knows, based on what you've just showed us, Mike, um, you know, all bets are off. Um, so Patrick, uh, are you a super spreader? Well, um, well, let's see what the intelligence services have to say about this. Uh, this is The Guardian, their in-house uh, newsletter uh, for the intelligence services in the U.S. and the U.K. So they're talking about here in Maine, a super spreader uh, at a wedding linked to, they claim, 170 COVID cases and seven deaths. And uh, luckily, there's still some adults in the room. Uh, author Martin Cohen, uh, a British uh, author and, uh, you know, great, great author and, and researches these types of subjects very well. He points out in paragraph six of this article via the Associated Press and The Guardian here, none of those who died actually attended the wedding reception, he says, kind of looks like propaganda, not reporting. Mm. Uh, but he goes on to sort of add some more details here. Statisticians will know uh, that if you took any group of 100 Americans at random, given the prevalence of COVID in the U.S., uh, you could end up with tens of thousands of, quote, contacts and several hundred, quote, infections, none of which 
need have any actual causal link. No, that's a pretty good point right there. And, and are we not seeing that in just about all of the reporting? So how easy will it be to generate a headline or a propaganda story like we just saw in The Guardian here? Came via Associated Press and literally it's a green light. They're matadoring in, in the stuff off the news wires. Yeah, we'll take it. Super spreader, yeah, we'll take that. Mm. The Guardian will take it. The Times, yeah, we'll take that. And so that's why you see all these same stories cascading across all mainstream media outlets is because they're like matadors, the editors. You know, they're just like, yeah, straight in, you know. Don't check anything. They're not questioning anything. It's coming off the wires. Yep, fine, it's fact. So, but what does this bring us to? Well, look at this story here by the New York Times. So they're claiming here uh, in the past week, a New York Times survey found American colleges and universities recorded more than 36,000 additional coronavirus cases. The rising number underscores an emerging reality. College campuses have become hotspots for virus transmission. How colleges became new hotspots for COVID. Now, what do you think about this on first glance? I'm calling this the school spike trick, okay? So what, what, do you, what do you think about this, Mike? I'll show you a comment after this. Uh, well, 36,000 additional coronavirus cases. They must have been testing everybody as they came into college. That's probably a good reason why you would get that sort of data. And we are, well, what we know about the PCR test, and we'll reiterate that in a minute. So just some additional analysis here. This is Bill Gurley, again, another adult in the room on social media. He's pointed out something quite important here, saying, interesting how the New York Times is framing colleges are the new hotspot narrative. Missing in the narrative is the astonishing fact that hospitalizations and deaths are minuscule. 88,000 cases and a complete lack of severe cases. Isn't this shockingly positive? Wouldn't we have hope for this? Shouldn't we be celebrating this good news, Mike, with all of these cases and no hospitalizations or deaths? But if, if you did that, then you would have no reason for lockdown and you could open the country up again and you could take all the restrictions off. Ah, oh, okay. why would we want that? Why would we want that? That's a good point. I'm, I'm sorry, I overlooked that. So, but uh, just moving on here, uh, some additional comment here. This is from Jesper uh, Olison, and he's saying a PCR test cannot distinguish between a virus and residues of RNA that are not infective. In other words, a positive PCR test is not necessarily even an infection. We know it's not a case even, but it may not even be an infection. So cases and infections are two words that are being used all the time uh, in the press by politicians and irresponsible public health officials. And he goes on, a PCR test which is performed too fast on too small an amount of substrate is absolutely worthless. So quote, cases can be false or non-infectious positives. Is that not a statement of fact? Uh, absolutely is. That's a statement of fact based on everything we've read. And by the way, we'll back that up because this is what the New York Times told us last week. When this shocking piece got out somehow in the New York Times, the fact they printed this, I was so shocked because it's absolutely true. It says, your coronavirus test is positive. Maybe it shouldn't be. So they're basically saying it's not a diagnostic test or it shouldn't be used as a diagnostic. And funny enough, this is what the inventor of the PCR test actually said mm -hmm. uh, when he warned uh, medical professionals and warned the medical community, please, after he got his Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. please, please don't use this as a diagnostic test. And what's happening today? 
Well, they're using it as a diagnostic test. They're using it as a diagnostic. We're calling this, Mike, here, uh, we're calling it PCR test fraud, question mark. Well, it's not so much of a question mark anymore. And just some additional uh, point on here. So this is from Matt Malkus. He, he's from Nashville, Tennessee. He's doing a lot of great work locally. There's a lot of good activists now in mm -hmm. states and local cities who are looking at the data in their towns. He's saying here, uh, now a whole lot of people know what I've known about the situation in Nashville, Tennessee for weeks. Not only is our COVID policy not data-driven and not following the science, it's in direct contract, contrast to both. It's probably the same where you live too. Don't give them an inch, says Matt Malkus. That's good advice. Uh, absolutely. That's what people need to do. Absolutely. Do not give the press or public health officials an inch on this. Don't give your politicians an inch because they are fudging, they are cooking the data, they're showing you what they want to show you, and they're in, in many cases misleading the public, giving a false impression of a crisis, of spikes, of surges, and using that to justify lockdown policies which are going to well, they could result in actual fatalities. Uh, now, uh, thinking back to the uh, to the lockdown deaths at the peak of the UK uh, pandemic, um, many of those were in care homes. And of course, part of the reason for that was because people were being sent uh, undiagnosed from uh, hospitals into care homes, uh, which became nice little areas of infection. But the other reason, of course, was that once a care home was infected, they weren't getting the medical support that they needed in order to deal with that infection. Um, well, here's an opportunity to hold the government to account uh, because uh, they have now issued their care home, COVID care home plan for this winter. And uh, let's just have a look at the main areas that they're looking at, infection, prevention and control. Uh, PPE, they're going to provide PPE for everybody in the care home and staff and residents uh, for free. They're going to reduce workforce movement between care homes uh, through various standards and so on. They're going to uh, manage quarantining properly. They're going to build our scientific understanding, uh, allegedly. Oh, this is good stuff. Uh, they are going to uh, step up NHS clinical support. So should there be any problems in, uh, in care homes, uh, they're going to make sure they claim uh, that the care home gets the support from the NHS that they didn't get the first time round. Well, at least somebody's getting something from the NHS. Well, That's good to hear. It hasn't been delivered yet. Let's, uh, let's wait and see. Uh, this is what they say they're going to do. They're going to provide comprehensive testing. Uh, they're going to provide uh, require oversight and, and compliance. They're going to build the workforce, apparently, yes. forward, and they're going to fund it properly. So this is what the government claims that they're going to do. Uh, and they're going to uh, provide a new dashboard, which is going to monitor care home infections and help local government and providers respond quicker. Uh, and they're going to uh, provide uh, 1.1 billion pounds uh, to help with this. So the government has made this statement. Uh, we need to hold the government to account. Um, so we're going to have to watch what goes on in care homes this winter very, very closely and make sure they do that they say uh, everything that they say that they're going to do. Because our argument is uh, that the policy that they chose to push forward with resulted in deaths. Uh, many people suggest that, that therefore the government needs to be held responsible for those deaths and there was deliberate policy causing those deaths. That needs to, we need to make sure that doesn't happen again this year. But it's OK because we're launching a new dashboard just for this, and then we'll have another dashboard next week, and it'll be dashboards galore by the time we get to Christmas. 
Death by Dashboard. Uh, absolutely. Now, a few minutes ago, we had uh, the wonderful Matt Hancock on screen talking about patient safety. He used the term patient safety twice in the same uh, soundbite. Uh, so let's, uh, let's move on then to patient safety. Uh, here we go. Um, so more patients and healthcare staff apparently are going to benefit from a single from single electronic patient records at seven hospital trusts uh, because they're going to receive a share of £8.7 million to introduce digital records and e-prescribing. Now, you may wonder what this has to do with patient safety. Uh, not direct. It does directly. It doesn't have anything to do with it, except that this was announced uh, yesterday at Imperial College London's COVID-19 and the Drive for Safety and Equality Conference. Learning from the front line is what they called it. And this was to celebrate World Patient Safety Day. Okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, what is World Patients? Oh, well, before we get on to what World Patient Safety Day is, we should also mention this. At the same time that they released this information about e-prescribing and digital uh, uh, records and the fact that it's going to save all kinds of lives and improve patient safety, uh, the MHRA, of course, who is the regulatory organization for medicines in this country, issued this statement saying that the MHRA, MHRA will now issue all safety-critical alerts for medicines and medical devices that require action as national patient safety alerts. So patient safety has suddenly become right front and center. So what is this all about? Well, yesterday was National Patient Safety Day, uh, and here is uh, the World Health Organization. And now this resulted, uh, this began two years ago following uh, the British government uh, putting the proposal in, and all kinds of people uh, voted for it, all kinds of countries voted for it, and so it got status as a national day. Um, so recognizing patient safety as a global health priority, all 194 WHO member states at the 72nd World Health Assembly in May 2019 endorsed the establishment of World Patient Safety Day uh, to be marked annually on the 17th of September. The objectives of the World Patient Safety Day are to increase public awareness and engagement, enhance global understanding and spur global solidarity and action to promote patient safety. So that should make us all feel really good. Now, what was the, feature, what was the, the, the main uh, focus of this year's Patient Safety Day? Uh, it was health worker safety. Ah, not because, patients. Not patients. Right. Uh, because apparently the only way to keep patients safe is to keep health workers safe. Now, we mm. have been reporting on this for a few weeks now, because if you remember back several weeks, we were talking about the fact that the guidance from St. John's Ambulance, and in fact, we discovered this guidance was pretty much universal across, across healthcare in the UK, was that, for example, if you needed to give people some kind of... Uh, uh, you, some kind of support, some kind of life support, you were no, no longer allowed to give mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Uh, so any CPR done uh, only by hands, no mouth-to-mouth -mouth <laughs> resuscitation. So uh, the focus now is not about, uh, in healthcare, about saving lives at any cost. It's about making sure that uh, uh, the healthcare is safe before the patient. Which, is, that's, which, which means less lives are going to be saved. Absolutely. So go back to that image just, just quickly here. So the message they're sending is, Mike, that uh, uh, we're, we're, we're discouraging people from using healthcare services because of COVID. In some cases, we're, we're blocking them and you can only get telephone appointments. And so uh, the, the easiest way, according to this, to keep the patient safe is to keep them away from the hospital. Isn't this what people have been experiencing for the last? Uh, absolutely. So have to make an appointment for accident emergency now. You can't just show up. Uh, you've got to book an appointment to A&E. So they're, they're rationing health care. They're restricting health care. And then they're running a campaign called 
patient safety. Mm. The best way you can serve a patient is to allow that patient access to health services, mm. and that's not what's happening. Um, now, uh, a few days ago, Boris Johnson saying, you know, we've got to deal with this COVID situation because we don't want to have to cancel Christmas. Um, well, what has been cancelled is New Year uh, because London's New Year Eve fireworks have been cancelled. But of course, Patrick, the reason for this is because, you know, they run I know, this. I know why. I'll tell you in a minute, but go ahead. Well, they run this massive fireworks display on one side of the uh, Thames and they have everybody uh, on the other side of the Thames. There's no possibility for social distancing, so they've cancelled this. But Patrick, my question to you is, what happens with Santa Claus? Because he's coming down chimneys and he's got... He's taken COVID potentially to every house in the in the uh, with children in the in the country. It's a massive risk, and I'll tell you why. Because you know Santa's working with the elves in the north and Lapland. He's all those elves, and you don't know what they've been up to. Okay, and then all of a sudden Santa shows up down your chimney. Okay, Santa could be a super spreader. So you can. I think. I think all the elves will have to get tested. In fact. Gosh. I don't think there's going to be any presents this Christmas. Mike. No, no Christmas. But go, go, it, go back it, it to the firework display. I want to tell you why they've canceled fireworks. If you look closely at this, everybody look closely at this image. What do you see in the center of this firework image? There is a coronavirus there. Can you see it? Uh, I can. Just faint. And then, so you can see COVID is in the air. Yes. COVID is in the air. And so this is, I think this is why the government are canceling New Year's Eve fireworks. It's just too risky. It's airborne, airborne COVID. Uh, moving on, and uh, perhaps a, a bit more positive and more serious here. Van, in fact, there's a, quite a number of people uh, in popular culture and so on starting to speak out about the fact that life has effectively been cancelled here. Uh, and the latest one is Van Morrison being heavily criticised by the BBC, of course. Uh, coronavirus, Van Morrison lockdown, protest songs, dangerous. Um, and uh, so he's released a number of songs which, uh, which are really criticizing uh, the, the way that the world is being run at the moment. Uh, I think uh, everybody that speaks out this way uh, needs support and should be supported. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't worry too much about what the BBC says. Well, when the BBC is saying that about your song, what do you think the result is going to well, be? I think it's going to boost your sales somewhat. I think it should be at the top of the charts, Van Morrison. So a big thumbs up to Van the Man. And it seems like, Mike, the Irish or the, the the dissenters in Ireland are really sort of pushing the tip of the spear on this issue. I mean, this is where the real uh, resistance is coming from on this. I think that's a quite an exciting development. Yeah. So good to see Van Morrison and other people as well uh, pushing the envelope on this. Okay, now if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, a final reminder, because at midnight tonight, the changes to human medicine regulation consultation ends. Uh, if you would like to uh, give your thoughts on that, the URL for getting there is on screen at the moment uh, and we suggest that you do if you haven't done so already. It'll only take you a few minutes and you can have your say and input uh, any information or important information that, that you think needs to be highlighted. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and just a, a quick heads up for uh, the latest David Ellis report. Uh, this is all about the strategic defense review that, that's going on, the integrated strategic defense review that's going on at the moment. Um, excellent uh, program. Um, there's just one slight technical error with that, which, so that's hopefully going to be resolved later on. But, but do watch it anyway. It is uh, worth watching and share it if you possibly can. Now, Patrick, 
it is, or it was yesterday, the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. Uh, and uh, well, there's celebrations going on in Plymouth. There is, and a lot of people say there's not much going on in Plymouth compared to the big metropolises like London, Manchester, and Birmingham, but that was not the case uh, this week. Uh, yeah, this is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower setting sail uh, to the United States, which was at that time the New World. Uh, more on that later. Yes. Uh, so there were a lot of things planned and some things have been canceled because of the, uh, quote, pandemic. Uh, but we'll give you a little uh, snapshot of this. So this is in Plymouth in the United Kingdom. You can see these are the Mayflower steps here, Mike, for people who haven't been here. That's right down in the Barbican, those steps there. They're not actually the original Mayflower steps. I think the original steps are in the pub across the road, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Admiral, Admiral McBride, but that's another story. But so you can see some people gathering here, and let's take a look at what this was all about. Uh, this is Luke Pollard, uh, Labor MP uh, for Plymouth, and he's saying the Mayflower 400 is a chance for us to tell our city's story and our city's place in the story in one of the most important voyages uh, in history. So it is a really important historical event for the city of Plymouth, but not just for Plymouth, but for the United States, because this was the original group of people who settled uh, Europeans who settled in the east coast uh, of the United States there in the colonies. Well, it was the first uh, sailing that was not government-backed. That's right. The, yes. the, the Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, yeah. preceded this, I think. So it's, uh, it is important in that sense. So let's look at uh, what it's all about here. This is the new Mayflower, uh, and this is basically the Mayflower Autonomous Ship, or Mass. And this was... Uh, ship? It's the ship, yeah, I, it's really a catamaran. It's basically an unmanned uh, marine uh, boat. And uh, we'll look at uh, another view here, just to take a look. So it's a catamaran design, uh, solar panels on top, as you can see. Uh, it's about, uh, well, we'll look at the specs in a minute. Let's look at the specs and see what this is here. So 15 meters long, basically, um, aluminum hull. Uh, and this is an average speed of about eight knots, six to eight knots. So at that speed, and that's debatable whether it's going to maintain that speed, um, it, probably 3,000-odd miles, Mike, to to the East Coast. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, something like that, yeah. So it's really, that's a 20-day journey or something like that. So it's going to take a while, and it's probably going to be accompanied by some sort of an escort. I don't see this thing going completely on its own. So AI is being provided by IBM, so artificial intelligence, that's the big buzzword for this new Mayflower that is setting sail. The maiden voyage is actually going to be in the spring of 2021, uh, and we'll, we'll call this a woke drone. This is basically a marine drone. So it's a woke drone because it's going to be studying climate change. And uh, it's also going to be sustainable and supposedly solar powered, Mike. But uh, that, that little solar panel doesn't look like it's going to power very much at all. There's four of them, actually. But, um, you know, whether that can sustain eight knots in the rough, tum the rough and tumble of the Atlantic, I really don't know for sure. I mean, one big wave could capsize that thing uh, very easily going across. So, but it's, it, it does have some important work that it's going to be doing um, plastic waste and pollution. It's going to be studying that, marine mammals, uh, machine learning. Hopefully we'll recognize other boats and objects via an array of cameras and sensors that are going to be on board. Uh, but uh, just a little more detail on this. The various applications of this type of marine drone, of course, is going to be science, exploration, uh, and also, this is part of the fourth industrial revolution. So this is the first 
generation of something that's probably going to be quite commonplace in about 10 years and was launched in Plymouth this week for good or bad, depending on what your feelings are on the fourth industrial revolution. But some of the applications are going to be for water taxis. Of course, large cargo ships could be automated, will be automated, uh, fish farms and this sort of industrial activity uh, as well, and military. Now, I put an asterisk next to that, Mike, because the military already have mm. autonomous uh, marine vessels, uh, but they're not all in the public sphere, as it were. Okay, so this is the first, I would say, non-military, perhaps, uh, uh, boat here. But let's look at uh, how this was made in Poland, because there were no ships, no uh, shipyards, shipyards that would take the job in the UK. So it was actually made in Poland, and the Polish are getting no credit whatsoever, of course, for this. But it's really... I mean, it's an EU project. It's kind of an EU project here. So the design and the engineering are done here with the team in conjunction with Plymouth University, uh, but also private firms and investment as well, and also IBM and another US firm, okay? But the actual boat, I believe, was made in Poland. So that's a little bit of a anticlimax there in terms of the, you can see the British and the American flag on top of this. So they don't, but where's the Polish flag? I mean, so they're not getting any credit for this. So really, no change with Brexit there. It's, uh, but this project has actually been, I think, about three or four years uh, in the making right now. So uh, let's look at uh, the festivities here. This was the delegation coming uh, up the catwalk here. They uh, don't seem to be wearing any masks. They arrived by boat. No, they weren't. Other people were, and I'll show you those in a minute. You can see the social distancing signs there. Uh, to make sure everybody is safe and everybody's observing social distancing. Uh, this was the first Sea Lord, Admiral uh, Tony Radekin. He was there representing the British military and he also spoke. Uh, and this is Woody Johnson, U.S. Ambassador to the U.K., Donald Trump's Ambassador to the U.K. He was one of the, also the keynote speakers uh, for the festivities as well. So there were a few uh, other high-ranking delegates here, Carl Van Oostrom, uh, the Dutch ambassador to the UK, and also here, this was one of the uh, defense attaches, I think the defense attache for the Netherlands, uh, for the UK and Ireland, and really talking about, he was talking to LBC and the BBC about the joint military and naval exercises that uh, the Netherlands and the UK are doing. Mm. They go way back in terms of partnership, um, all the way back to uh, the Mayflower. In fact, because um, most of the people who were on the Mayflower, or a good number of them were from Holland, yeah. actually, from Leiden. So a lot of people don't know that. So there was a Dutch contingent. So this is Woody Johnson christening the Mayflower autonomous uh, ship uh, with a bottle of Plymouth gin. So he's pouring it right onto the hull there. Uh, so, so he didn't want to smash the bottle on, on the hull then. He probably would have smashed the hull. <laughs> no, it was very polite and he poured it. Yeah. So and uh, so all the, the band, military band and full complement was out with all the regalia and so forth. So this was kind of a big event uh, for the Southwest in that sense. Even the town criers came as well. And these were the social media of their day would come to the, the town square and shout the news to the people, or they would be at you know funerals, weddings, anything that was going on. Uh, the town criers, uh, their job is to sort of inform people of what's going on, so they sh showed up as well. Nice to see some uh, good English tradition. No masks. Again, no masks. So uh, high police presence as well. You can imagine the security with 
uh, high-ranking delegates. So there was quite uh, a bit of security and police presence in, in the water as well as on the land. Uh, so, but there were masks, Mike. This is the city delegation from Plymouth, I think. Looks like the Lord Mayor. I'm not sure. I can't really identify anybody. Um, because they're all behind their masks. They're all wearing masks. But these were the only people really wearing masks. It was very strange. But right next to them, if you look on the sort of right-hand side, you can just see some of the first MAGA supporters. And so they <laughs> were making their presence known. God bless Donald Trump. Uh, so they were really, there was an effort made to push them off to the side, but they were very determined to uh, establish their pitch there at the Mayflower Steps, very proud of what was happening and also very uh, happy and proud of their president. You can see uh, their banner there is Donald Trump with a British and an American flag, two nations, one constitution is the strap line uh -huh. underneath there. So this is very interesting. So. But uh, this was the boat going out, and a lot of people thought it was actually leaving for the United States, but it wasn't actually, it, it, it's, it can't travel on its own yet. So it was kind of an anticlimax there. It's being pulled and pushed uh, behind from a little uh, boat there, and then also towed from the front. So, but there it is. It will be doing its maiden voyage in the spring. This is a cutting edge uh, AI-driven autonomous technology. And uh, this is it, uh, out past the breakwater. And if you look just behind along the breakwater in the back, you'll see some, uh, some words uh, along the horizon there. No new worlds. This is an art installation that has been put to basically coincide with the Mayflower 400 mic. And uh, here's a better look at that. This is no new world. So this is a, a kind of a social justice art exhibition that's been kind of planted there for like three months. Mm -hmm. They'll remove it supposedly at Thanksgiving, and it's arguing that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like a protest of the Mayflower going to, a lot of people would, would view it like that. And they say it's to stimulate conversation, saying that uh, we shouldn't call America the new world. But back in, it's, it's, it's an interesting, Debate, Mike, but really back in the in those days, for Europeans, it, it, it was, was it was the new world. So, but um, again, this is following on the kind of statue conversation of kind of rewriting history. Um, so this, unfortunately, is unescapable. This is what it looks like at night. It's on twenty four seven. So for three months, it's no new worlds, and, and it supposedly flashes different combinations of those three words. But it's uh, not not all the residents are on board with it. Mm -hmm. Some people think it's a it's an interesting and it's it's woke and so forth. But other people don't like it. So we might report a bit more on that mm -hmm. uh, in the future. I spoke to quite a few residents about this. But uh, here's what Luke Pollard has to say: Coronavirus means we've had a very different kind of commemoration than the one we had planned. So a lot of things were canceled. This was the first major event that actually went forward. It was all supposed to happen this summer the Mayflower 400, so 400th anniversary, so in 2020. But here's, this is where it's interesting, it says, I'm determined that the Mayflower 400 produces a lasting and positive legacy, uh, one that renews the bond between, get this, the people of Plymouth, the United States, and the Wampanoag Nation. This is a, a Native American tribe, which is interesting. So I didn't realize uh, that Plymouth was, um, you know, building bridges with the Wampanoag Noig uh, tribe. So, but in reality, there are dozens of uh, Native American tribes in Massachusetts, 
uh, and in New England, not just mm -hmm. that one there. So it's interesting how they've been kind of singled out as uh, someone here. And if you look on the Mayflower's website, Nations Changed Forever by Colonization. So again, this is kind of the woke This is language. the new narrative which is being built, absolutely. So all of the uh, slides on their website will feature Native American faces and face painted. It's a, it's a little bit kitsch, actually. Mm. Um, and some might say a little bit patronizing as well. But um, this is about, you know, feeling guilty about colonization and so forth. And, you know, again, we can have this debate later about this. But this is where it's interesting. In Plymouth, Massachusetts, that's the replica of the Mayflower. So, so that's the original or what the original looks like, this giant grand galleon. And now we have this 15-meter uh, piece of aluminum mm -hmm. catamaran. So we've come a long way, it seems. Uh, in 400 years, uh, so but this one, this was the replica. This wasn't allowed to do its tour in Boston Harbor or to Newport, Rhode Island, Connecticut. It was canceled. Yep. Guess why? Well, it could only be because of the. Well, we were going to say Coroni. Oh, let me go back. Sorry. Yeah. So keep talking. So uh, we. It could only be because of the coronavirus. Uh, because of Covey. So, so not Coroni? No, this is Covey. This is the evil twin sister of Coroni. And Coroni is always confused, as you pointed out. Covey is, is really laughing. Covey's having a laugh because Covey is getting things canceled left, right, and center. So how on earth would this be a threat to have this ship sailing into your harbor? You know, but it's just one of many... Uh, similar things that have been canceled. So, yeah. anyway, we'll 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 see more, no doubt, from from Covey in the future. So, but it's really all about the special relationship. And here's Joe Biden because he's uh, been talking about the special relationship, and he's of course criticizing Brexit and the uh, changes to the legislature, the new legislation that's coming through the UK at the moment for the Internal Market Bill. Uh, and saying we can't allow the Good Friday Agreement to be that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. And that was, uh, of course, uh, a follow-up to uh, a, a letter written to, from the Congress of the United States uh, on the September the 15th uh, to Boris Johnson, basically saying exactly the same thing. Four congressmen signed this. Uh, but Patrick, I would imagine that this is more to do with the US general election than it has to do with any genuine concern over the Northern Irish border uh, or the uh, internal market bill and the internal politics of the United Kingdom. Yeah, because uh, you can see this is a, an effort driven by Nancy Pelosi. Those are all Democratic signatures. So there is something going on in the background. One of the things, of course, with Donald Trump uh, and Joe Biden, Joe Biden being a Catholic, apparently, uh, and Donald Trump garnering a significant amount of Catholic votes in the 2016 election, the Catholic vote is up for grabs. So anything that's causing strife or tension that could be laid at the feet of Donald Trump may or may not play well with the Irish Catholic vote, which is a very influential uh, vote, especially in, in New York and New England and things like that. So, so it's potentially a swing vote in some states, but nationwide as well. I don't know if this is why this is becoming an issue now or is becoming more of a partisan issue, but also it's be also because of Bill Clinton's um, well, he had a big part to play in the in the original Belfast Agreement. The so, legacy of Bill yeah, Clinton. Yes. So, so that that's certainly something that the Democrats hold on to because they need to hold on to as much as they possibly can at these at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> because from from an economic point of view, I don't see why 
This would be uh, where are the Republicans, where are the GOP? If it's about economics, mm -hmm. if it's about business and trade, where are the GOP on this? They don't seem to be too concerned about it. So I, you know, I think they're just after the trade deal. Yeah, that's Trump wants to do his deal. And I think the Democrats would want to scarper it or disrupt it if they could. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's uh, let's move on to a, a little bit of immigration news here because uh, want to live, work, and study in the UK. Find out more about the two-year youth mobility scheme. This is for people from Hong Kong, of course. Uh, the UK Hong Kong youth mobility scheme is in its seventh year, and it allows people aged between 18 and 30 to live, work, or study in the UK for up to two years. Uh, and they run a ballot every year. It's a bit like the H-1B visa program in the United States, I suppose. Uh, Unlike previous years, though, uh, this year the selection criteria has been changed to a lottery uh, and there's no longer a requirement to provide what they're calling a certificate of sponsorship. Now, Patrick, I wasn't sure why that would be, why have the rules changed this year in particular. Perhaps the, uh, the rioting, the anti-government protests in, in Hong Kong have something to do with it. And of course, if we think back to Syria, uh, then as soon as they sort of people that uh, were active in Syria, in this case, the White Helmets. And the opposition. And the opposition wanted to come to the UK. It was no problem. Green-lighted, so, yeah. Absolutely green-lighted. So so uh, perhaps uh, this, the rules have been changed here in order to make it easier for uh, people that need to get out of Hong Kong uh, to get out of Hong Kong and come to the UK. Well, if you look at any war situation with the United States, with the UK, with some European countries, so they'll, they'll always uh, welcome the opposition in uh, with open arms, whether it's from Libya or from Syria or from Iraq, for instance, or some of these uh, other countries like now Hong Kong. Okay, so Joshua Wong's uh, gangs of rioters mm -hmm. uh, beating residents and uh, you know trying to set police on fire and things like that. That fifth column in Hong Kong, that pro-Western, backed by the U.S. State Department, Joshua Wong and half the U.S. Senate. Okay, that fifth column is being used against the Chinese government will be welcome back in the West. Mm. They'll give them all sorts of opportunities. They'll look after them, financial aid, but they, to build that fifth column, and then that's the kind of uh, diaspora fifth column that can be used to point back uh, at, at, in the future at the enemy, but it's also a uh, soft power exercise yes. uh, as well. So I think I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then let's just uh, come on to, to Belarus because there's clearly, uh, we're heading towards an attempted regime change here. I'm not quite sure how the Russians are gonna react to this, but the UK along with 16 other members of the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, has triggered the Moscow mechanism now. So for people that don't know what the Moscow mechanism is, it was adopted uh, to strengthen the, what's called the Vienna mechanism. It provides an option for sending missions of so-called experts to assist participating states in the resolution of a particular question or problem. But of course, uh, there is no desire from Belarus for resolution of a particular pro problem they held. They held an election. There was a result, uh, and uh, the the, the uh, you know that result is considered legitimate. It's only in the West that it's not considered legitimate. So the Moscow mechanism in this case, being used to push people into Belarus for what to, in order to build a narrative for regime change. Um, so here is what uh, Dominic Rabb had to say today with our partners in the OSCE. We have triggered the Moscow mechanism, initiating an independent international investigation into the vote rigging and human rights abuses in Belarus. 
what evidence have they got of vote rigging or human rights abuses? I'm not sure. But of course, what we have here, Patrick, once again, is the rapid response mechanism going on, never mind the Moscow mechanism. This is the common narrative between, in this case, uh, Belgium, Canada, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, UK and the United States. So those countries have all agreed uh, to push forward with this. This is exactly what they did with Venezuela as well and recognizing Juan Guaido as the sort of president, uh, even though you know he di didn't even, I, I don't think he ran uh, in the national election against Maduro, but he was sort of appointed president and all the other countries, many of whom, which you just named, also signed on mm. to that one as well. So yes, it's an extension of the rapid uh, response mechanism. So if we don't like the, uh, the re election result, even if the Svetlana, uh, the opposition candidate uh, who's feted by the West, even if she wasn't even close to winning, she is the rightful yep. winner yes. uh, in the eyes of the West. Yes. So, But more games, more games. Uh, Alexei Navalny, here he is, the right-wing fascist nationalist who's loved by the left wing in the West. Uh, he's got some problems, Mike, with their Novichok story. Now, it's starting to fall apart very quickly. Naval Navalny's team now says that the uh, bottle supposedly with Novichok was found in the opposition figure's Siberian hotel room after he fell ill on his Moscow flight. So the, the original story was to to totally different. It's totally different. That he had a bottle that he carries with him all the time that was poisoned. And uh, here's Brian McDonald. He's very popular on Twitter and writes for RT. He says that the Navalny story just gets stranger. His team says Novichok was found in a water bottle in a Siberian hotel room after he fell ill on a Moscow-bound flight last month. It was then taken to Germany for analysis. Hmm, has to be some questions here. So the free bottle of water in the hotel room uh, somehow made it to Germany for testing. I mean, how did they manage that? Was it put in a diplomatic pouch? Or did the Germans just go to the local supermarket and buy a bottle of Avion there uh, rather than in Siberia? I don't know, maybe they don't have Avion in there to match it. But uh, some people are poking fun at this actually on Twitter. This is uh, uh, Elena here on Twitter. She's saying, oh dear, another version of the Navalny story. Uh, the one before was that it was a bottle of, that Navalny had always carried with him. And they point out here, no hazmat suits uh, in the hospital here. The doctor does not even wear gloves at Navalny's bedside. No wonder uh, he became ill from a dangerous Nerve agent Novichok in Russia. Not one. Masks are worn because of COVID. So interesting. So that it doesn't get any better for them. But, These narratives just never stack up. But the point is, when when the when this phony, I'm going to say it's a phony Novichok story because it's a joke. When this phony Novichok Navalny story came out, it was then used uh, to catapult the story into the headlines, and then pressure was put on the German government to halt the Nord Stream 2 gas joint pipeline project between Germany and Russia. So clearly this is a fake story that was engineered very much like the Skripal uh, uh, story uh, and used to put the Nord Stream 2, which is one of the most important east-west projects maybe in history, mm. energy projects in history, to put that on ice by under the pretext of this fake Novichok attack. Mm here with this so-called, they call him the opposition, the head of the opposition in Russia. He's not 
that popular. He's more popular in the West than he is in Russia. He's kind of a right-wing right fascist nationalist type. He's not a very savory character, but the West kind of prop him up and make him into this kind of savior to who's bravely challenging Putin or something like this. So he's really kind of a, a manufactured figure, really. In as, the West. as most of these opposition figures are. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, look, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. As, as usual on Monday. Uh, have a good weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.